Hi, you're listening to Art Rant, my silly little art history podcast where I take you on the journey across art history. I'm your host Lana, a passionate art lover who knows way too many random absurd facts about art. Every episode we're going to depth discussing a particular artist or a painting or a whole art movement. The idea is that the next time you go into the art gallery you're gonna know a bit more about art pieces there and maybe it will help you connect with them. For me, it works that way. When I know the story behind the canvas, it keeps me on my toes with fascination, looking for every detail and every brushstroke. Because art is not only about pretty pictures after all. There's so much more to it. There's certain aesthetic in art. And I'm gonna try and show it. Tag along if you want to widen your art history horizons and have some good nerdy time. So, welcome back. It's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, I just had a few trips and it was a lot of uni work, but now I'm back. And back with a very exciting topic. Trompe l'oeil. It's one of the most exciting, intriguing and fascinating occurrences in art, I'd say. We talked about it recently at university and I just got reminded of what a cool thing it is. I was particularly interested in all of the diptychs and triptychs and polyptychs and how they're all connected with trompe l'oeil effect and also with the topic of death and such concepts as memento mori, dance macabre and ars moriendi. Sounds fancy, doesn't it? But don't worry, I'm gonna explain to you everything in a minute. For now, what is actually trompe l'oeil? How is it connected with vanitas, memento mori and other fancy lighting words? Why was it risky to order your own devotional diptych back in the day if you wanted to stay sane and life positive? Answers to all of these questions and much more you're gonna find in this episode. So keep listening. By the way, if you want to get some insight into my creative process and just updates on my content, you can follow me on my social media. It's artrad underscore with Lana on Instagram and TikTok. I also post some extra content there in form of fun facts and videos along with my general life. Again, it's artrand underscore with Lana on Instagram and TikTok. Okay, now without any further ado, let's get right into it. So, the term trompe l'oeil itself originated only in 1800, but of course the technique itself was widely used before this time too. Let's finally give it a proper definition, shall we? Trompe l'oeil is an artistic term which describes a very realistic optical illusion. It is a painting where depicted objects bear such a strong mimetic resemblance to the real thing that the viewer can be deceived into believing that what is painted is actually real. I think a very fun and unusual explanation that I can give is Looney Tunes. I know, but bear with me here. Remember something like Looney Tunes or Tom and Jerry or any other comedic children's cartoon? You know when one character would, for example, paint a tunnel on the rock wall and the other one would run straight into it, thinking that it's a real thing? That's 
That's Trompleu, and I really like how an art concept is present in so many other mediums of human life. Although it may only be expected, as we are all humans, but I also like that we can use an actual official term for that. Also a good example is pavement art, when something is painted on the asphalt, like a hole or terrible monsters coming from under the ground, just the tourist attractions. And again, I really like how we can give a real artistic term to describe that. But yeah, that's Trompleau. I talked about a certain Greek legend in my Dutch Golden Age and Still Lives episode in connection with Vanitas there, but I might just as well remind us of it here too. So, as anything good in our world, it comes from antiquity. The myth tells a story about a competition between two artists, to determine who's the best, obviously. One paints grapes so lavish that the birds come down to peck on it. Giddy with his success, he turns to his competitor and asks him to drop back the curtain which conceals his work, only to discover that the curtain is the painting itself. The second artist came out as a winner not only because of his masterful technique, but also because he played on expectations. And it is exactly what is trompleu. The perspective of the depicted and pretended objects should align with the point of view of the viewer, as well as the lighting should correspond to the real lighting conditions. Let's look at the Ghent Alta, or Adoration of the Mystic Lamp. An absolute masterpiece by Hubert and Jan van Eyck, completed in 1432. It is a polyptic altarpiece consisting of 12 panels. It is absolutely massive and it is one of the most significant art pieces in the history of art. I don't want to go into too much detail about it now, God knows people can talk about it for hours on end and this piece absolutely deserves it. What I want to draw your attention to here is the lighting on the outer part of this polyptych when it's closed. Even the frame itself throws a shadow on the floor between Saint Mary and Archangel Gabriel. The thing is that it was supposed to hang in a very specific place where the light from the window would hit the painting at a very particular angle, and the artist created this painting with the thought of this on his head. However, later it was hanged in the other part of the church, so now the effect is not that strong. But for example, the food of Adam is still kind of steps out slightly over the frame, and it also adds effect of reality. The interesting thing is that Trompleu works only once. We look at the painting, there is a moment of shock when we don't know whether what we see is reality or illusion, but then when we understand what is actually before us, it's all gone and it's never going to deceive us again the same way. So what's the point then? So much effort, so much work for temporary play on the viewer's eyes. Well, it's not quite so simple. Let us get distracted from the French words and talk about Latin ones for a moment here. As you can imagine, Middle Ages and even some time after them was not a very fun and safe time to live in. Surprise, surprise! The constant pandemics, outbreaks of diseases and multitude of wars left a significant cultural impact. People were much closer to death back then, and they had quite a different relationship with it than we do. A different attitude, if you will. Ars Moriendi, or The Art of Dying Well, were basically guides to death in 14th-18th century Europe. 
It was a collection of devotional books that were used to prepare people for a good death, a righteous one, of course, according to Christianity. There was even a short version for those who didn't want to be bothered with the long one. It contained 11 woodcuts, so even pictures and not words. Five of those woodcuts with the devil presenting temptations and other five showing proper remedy for those temptations. Mostly it's just a man lying in a bed surrounded by the saints from one side and devils from the other side. The last one of them, the last woodcut, shows a dying man who presumably didn't give in to all of these temptations and is now accepted into heaven with a devil going back to hell in confusion. I think this guide invites people to contemplate about death even after so many centuries. Maybe not from the religious point of view necessarily, but in general, what it means to die well. Personally, for everybody. After all, death is conditio humana. It is innate in all living creatures. There is also dance macabre the dance of death, and I did lie, this one is French again. I'm sorry, everything in art is just named in French words, huh? Basically, it is literary, musical, or visual theme to remind us of our mortality, usually consisting of the death or personification of death itself, dancing at a grave. The audience is supposed to react emotionally to this, and I suppose be scared of the dancing skeletons? Everything passes in death. Death is the ultimate limit of all things. Okay, not to get too dark here, I promise I am leading up to something here. The other two terms that we are gonna need are memento mori and vanitas. They are pretty standard, I also talked about them in the Dutch Golden Age episode, but just as a quick summary. Memento mori translates as remember you must die, remember you are mortal. And vanitas just means vanity and refers to meaningless earthly life. Both were beloved in the Dutch still lives and, as we are going to see now, in altars too. So, coming to the most exciting part, during like 15th century Renaissance time, it was quite common for rich people, aristocrats, to order altars, diptychs with their own portrait inside and either Jesus or Saint Mary or both on the other side. Diptychs are like books, so they can be opened and closed and the outer side of them is where artists taught their moral lesson. Let's finally look at one of these diptychs. Jean Cossard, diptych of Jean Corandelet of 1517. The inside is pretty standard. On the left side we have Jean Corandelet himself, the patron, the guy who ordered this altarpiece with prayer hands, and on the other side we have Saint Mary with baby Jesus. So far so good. However, if we would close the diptych on the one side, we would see a new-looking coat of arms with a neatly rolled thread depicting initials of the patron in a stone niche, and on the other side, also in a stone niche, very realistically depicted, there is a skull with a broken jaw threatening to fall over the edge of the painting and the same thread, but here, scattered in shadow, unrecognizable initials. The role of the skull in paintings changed over the years, before it mostly appeared at the foot of the crucifix, alluding to the skull of Adam, first human sin and general sinfulness of human nature. 
However, with time, skull takes its own rightful place in the paintings. First, mostly in still lifes, always coming back to them, aren't we? They invite us to reflect on sin, death, penitence and our own mortality. For example, in this altarpiece, the inclusion of family coat of arms makes it very clear to the patron that it's not some random skull that he's looking at, but his own inevitable future face of death. Moreover, if he actually wanted to use this altar for devotion, he would have to actively confront death, as altars open from left to the right, and as it is, the image of the skull would open to the face of the patron. Fun, isn't it? And closing the diptych could actually be perceived as an exercise in dying. For some reason, I just really like the idea of some rich guy paying probably not such little money to get his own face next to the literal god, but with it he also gets a constant reminder of his death and that his earthly riches are meaningless and are just vanity. Serves him right, I guess, but I just really like the concept. At the bottom of the painted stone niches there is an inscription, Matura. Hurry to make the best of yourself. Other inscriptions on the other altars could say Morieres, which is just plain you will die, or the whole text fragment from Liber Exlestiasticus. O oh death, how bitter is the thought of you, to the one at peace among possessions, who has nothing to worry about and is prosperous in everything, and still is vigorous enough to enjoy food. Yep, very, very positive, isn't it? Coming back to the question of Trompleu, most of these skulls and rock niches, candles threatening to fall into the real space and pieces of paper pinned to the walls were depicted on movable objects, like diptychs and manuscripts, inside books. So what's the point? It's quite a weak illusion then, we wouldn't believe that there is a rock niche in the book. Well, the point was to overcome the fear of touching the death itself, either by opening your altar or turning the page. The combination of trompe and vanitas is quite significant as it is an interplay of sensual and intellectual experience, of imagination and intellect. This deception of the eye becomes indication of the viewer's ethical state of mind. The point is to teach the viewer to not make any rush decisions and judgments and possibly indulge into inconsiderable behavior. So to actually be able to contemplate one's own mortality is a test of maturity in a way. These paintings demand active mental participation and thus these vanitas trompeuses turn from an image of horror into an object of active philosophical reflection like the concept of meditatio mortis, meditation on death. According to Socrates, true philosopher is the one who is continuously practices dying and being dead. Yeah, I knew I made the right decision not choosing a philosophy degree after all, huh? So I hope it's more clear now that all of these paintings weren't meant to put the viewer and the patron into a constant state of depression and self-loathing, but quite the opposite actually. They called for them to be aware of their earthly life, make conscious right decisions, because it's quite possibly the only chance that they will get. So will we. 
really like the idea of putting a philosophical concept on the canvas in terms of we are so used to these mediums of intellectual and creative expression. Paints on canvas is art and words in the books is philosophy, applying to this conversation obviously and in a very simplified manner. But actually, it's not always like this. That's why it took me so much time to understand modern art and, well, I'm still in the process. It has actually nothing to do with art as we are used to it. It is an idea, a whole philosophy put on canvas or any other mediums used. I think the problem is the language that we use. Calling it art, because like you can't really put Rembrandt and Malevich next to each other and judge them with the same criteria. It's like putting a plane next to a car and trying to determine which one is going to fly better. Obviously the plane, but it doesn't mean that the car is worse. Okay, maybe maybe that's not the best metaphor, actually, but I just couldn't come up with any better ones. What I'm trying to say is that modern art is more like visual philosophy. And they actually had it back in the day, too, but they also used their artistic skills to show it, so it was a bit different. Whereas in 20th century, they decided to abandon the whole idea of mastery altogether, which was connected with a whole other thing, but... I hope you got what I mean. But that's not the point, is it? I got distracted again. Okay, back to our today's topic. I want to show you one last painting, just for the pure insanity of it. It's the Ambassadors by Hans Holbein the Younger of 1533. It depicts two men, ambassadors, in fancy gowns, surrounded by all kinds of objects. Globes, telescopes, musical instruments and notes, books and a carpet, all indicators of their profession or symbols of vanitas. But what's that? Between them there is some kind of a weird diagonal white kind of line. Well, you guessed it, it is yet another skull. Only it is painted in such a way that you can see it only under a very specific angle, like from, I think, from the upper right corner or from the bottom left corner. And I think it's the coolest thing ever. This guy was just reveling in his skill and mastery. There was literally no reason, zero, for him to paint it that way. But it is theorized that it was meant to hang at a staircase, so people coming up or down would be confronted by death but it's still a pure show-off. I think everybody was painting skulls back then, you know, Memento Mori and Vanitas, and he just got tired of it, and he was like, no, I'm just gonna do my own thing, and I'm gonna paint it in this super religionistic way, and well, hit it. It still is Memento Mori and reminder of that, but I just think it's fascinating how far artists were willing to go with it. Okay, so... I think it's enough reminders of that for now. Today we talked about Trompe-Leu, Memento Mori, Vanitas, Ars Moriendi and more fun Latin words, which remind us of our mortality. We talked about devotional diptychs, altars and still lives and how even rich people got reminded that nothing is forever, even their gold. We got into a bit of philosophical discussion there about visual philosophy and I will stand by this term because I think it makes things more clear. And we finished off with the understanding of what pure skill some older masters had and how truly astounding it is and how pure show-offish it is. As a last little thing, I want to make a small announcement. Starting with the next episode, Art Rant will come out once every month. 
I'm changing the format a bit. Even though it will come out more rare, the episodes will be better researched and possibly a bit longer, but only a bit. In between time, you can find me on TikTok or Instagram, it's artrend underscore with Lana. There I post quite regularly, making videos on different topics connected with art history and also just updates on my regular life. So yeah, the format is changing, but artrend is still here with you just now once every month. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast or on Spotify or Apple Podcast. It would mean a lot to me and will help other people find this silly little art history podcast. For now, keep enjoying the art world and until the next time, bye!